Hi, I am Janelle Klein, and this is episode 96 of Greater Than Code, and I'm here with my co-host, John Sars. And I'm here with my co-host, Rain Hendricks. Hello, everyone. I am here with my co-host, Jessica Kerr. Good morning, and I am super happy to be here today because it is my birthday, and you can tell it's my birthday because John Allspot is our guest. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. (laughs) So, John, he was the CTO at Etsy, and there he pioneered like this blameless post-mortem stuff, and then he was like part of the beginning of the DevOps movement, and then one day he emailed his hero. And now he is a leading figure in the fields of resilience engineering and human factors. Just last week, John gave the keynote at the inaugural redeploy conference, which if you listened to our last episode, you heard Heidi and I go on and on about. And I am super happy to have him here today to talk about whatever is going to be really interesting. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the enthusiastic uh, introduction and happy birthday. (laughs) Okay, you know what's coming now. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Well, I'm going to say that my superpower these days is seeing connections uh, across domains. Uh, I'd say that it's probably been that way for the past couple of years and... The topic uh, that you mentioned, resilience engineering, human factors, cognitive systems engineering, seeing connections between research done in those fields and the domain of software, I think, is my current superpower. I don't always get it right, but I I, I certainly have some some smart thoughts um, from time to time. And so I'm going to say that that's my superpower at the moment. That's a great one. Did you do anything special to acquire it, or did it just come upon you? I'll tell you exactly what happened. What happened was when I uh, I was working at a uh, photo sharing site called Flickr, and I had just an incredible team of engineers, a surprisingly small team of engineers, and it was really far back when I first became a manager. I kind of stepped back. And looked at this thing that we had built. It went from something like the 25th most trafficked Yahoo property to like the fifth in like a year. Like we we grew like absolutely bananas. And at the same time, like really kept pace with developing new features and all that sort of thing. And while we never had, there were a couple of pretty pretty serious, oh, bordering on catastrophic outages or incidents. But what I couldn't, I, 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 I had this thing in my gut. I couldn't understand. On paper, none of this should work as well as it does. And certainly when things don't go or things are surprising and, and, and there are incidents, man, these engineers are really good at this. And I didn't understand really. I just, I had this sort of really irritating or frustrating feeling. What makes them good at this? Because this is really hard stuff. And I thought, well, it's an option, but maybe it's because they were just born with it. This is some sort of natural expertise. That's obviously no good. 
Uh, and I didn't really buy that that idea. The other idea was it's because I'm in, I'm an incredible engineering manager, <laughs> and I just uh, and that also is incredibly disturbing uh, to think, and obviously not true. And so I just thought, I, how do they how do they do this? And this, you know, there's there is no sort of research or reading. There are no books that I could learn, certainly in software or computer science that could shed some insight or, or, or uh, some light on, you know, how do people, um, there's just a huge amount of ambiguity and uncertainty when, when things go wrong. Uh, troubleshooting and debugging isn't exactly, it's plenty been written about it, but it, it's, it's not, that's not what I'm talking about because these are very, when there's time pressure, consequence pressure, this is very different than, you know, that didn't work. Better put another print statement. Oh, that didn't work. Better another. You know, that's that's very different than resolving outages. And so what did that lead me? That led me to read about decision making in high consequence, high uh, 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 pressure scenarios. And that just led me to human factors. And specifically, the most sort of recent work, I'm going to say recent, I'd say maybe last 30 or so years of work, which is in human factors uh, terms, sort of pretty recent. And that's really what led me. And pretty soon, once you learn how to read and understand sort of the language of these papers and these authors and people who have been really thinking and doing the science around this stuff, you begin to see, just like in software, these circles run small. All technical communities run small, or they certainly feel small. And so th the relationships of of uh, uh, people who are well known in that in those communities, you know, led me to, from one to the other to the other to the other. And that's what led me to Richard Cook and Sidney Decker and David Woods and Nancy Levison and uh, blah, 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 all of those. And Steve Shark. Steve, uh, the, the, I actually knew of Steve because uh, one of the papers that Steve had written was part of an assignment that we had in the Lund University master's program in human factors and system safety. So sure enough, I read, see the author, email them and pester them with questions. And uh, so far, I haven't um, irritated them enough to uh, prevent them from letting me hang out with them. It sounds like you were fascinated by the question of how does this work of what Steve Sharrock called safety to studying what brings us success. Yeah, I would say that. I would say, I mean, I think when I sort of just referenced that, it was more just sort of the sort of more broad, you know, what happens at the intersection of people, technology and work. That's basically the gist of it. And the, the idea of safety, safety one and safety two also is a very recent, very recent idea. And, but yes, it is. And, and I think that it absolutely is the evolution of thinking that's, you know, multiple decades. But what's most important is not so much the, these, these sort of fundamental concepts, but how they get bridged, how they get, what does safety two mean in railway? What does safety two mean in mining and military work and um, aviation and medicine and oh, software? What are those? And so, yes, of course. And the thing that's fascinating about safety two is that safety two comes from, you know, uh, uh, really the concept comes from Eric Holnagel, who's sort of really a pioneer along with Dave Woods of the resilience engineering 
community and field of study, uh, which is only about 12 years old, but it represents an evolution, the idea that actually normal work is what goes into being safe. And there's a whole bunch of paradoxes and dilemmas we could talk about, but it, I, I, I love the idea. Not I, I love the idea. I am. Uh, I certainly love it because I actually cannot escape it and I cannot unsee it. So much could go wrong. Just like those way back in those days of Flickr, I was mentioning on paper, so much of this shouldn't work. And that's true in so many domains, complexity, success, complexity, success, complexity, success. These things are mutually reinforcing. Things get more complex as we become more successful. And the idea, it's a bit mind blowing, right? What's difficult to unsee is when you, when you think, what are all the things that went into not having an outage today? Well, the pithy and cheesy answer is normal work. Okay, what does normal work look like? Because people are continually doing stuff. They're doing stuff to avoid outages. In fact, outage prevention is happening right now, right? All outages are being prevented. And we don't recognize it's just what we do. It's just called work, right? We notice outages because they're a thing, right? That's an event. But... It's very difficult to detect non-events or understand non-events. You got to do extra work. And so that stuff is hidden. And that's what's, that's what gets me really sort of excited. You were talking about how there are these ideas that keep coming up in, di in different fields and how, in some sense, one of the things that human factors is doing is bringing them together in that it's all humans doing the work. And so human factors are always relevant. Another one that I keep seeing come up is, so one of the ideas in safety too is that the way that you make the good things happen more often is by increasing the variety in the system and the variety of the people making the decisions. Give them more options. And there is a concept in cybernetics called requisite variety, which says that the variety of states the system can have in order to control the system, the part of the system that's controlling has to have at least as much variety as the system being controlled. In other words, you have to have a coping mechanism for every possible thing that can go wrong. And if you don't, then something will go wrong that you can't cope with and you can't control the system. And so this idea of variety shows up over and over again. It shows up in the Toyota way where one of the things they did was – they increased the variety of the line workers. They made it so the line workers could do a larger variety of tasks. And that increased productivity. Yes, yes, yes. I think that if, if, if I'm successful over the next year or so, more people will have an understanding of and explore the edges of the law of requisite variety more than they have thinking fast and slow and cognitive biases. And I, 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 I could not be happier <laughs> that you brought up Ashby. And I would say that it's certainly not just as simple as that, but it's a certainly it's, it's as, as long as it's simple enough for, for people to uh, sort of pull on another more sort of modern. Uh, so Ashby wrote that in 56, mm -hmm. 56, I think would be, uh, it, another way of saying variety might be, if you ask some uh, in the community now, might be saying complexity, law of requisite complexity. 
which is to say only complexity can absorb complexity. Mm -hmm. You can put in a bunch of, you can make it control theory specific and say degrees of freedom or something <laughs> like that. But in the end, it means that it's not just about uh, diversity of components or interdependence or uh, uh, emerging behaviors or connectedness and all, all that sort of academic stuff. But yeah, and that is, geez, I mean, that's the topic. You got there real quick. That is, I mean, if there's, if there's literally anything that listeners should be aware of is pull on that thread. What is the law of requisite? The law of requisite variety rules everything around us. That's what I would say. And that is a, I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that is very difficult to unsee. And one last topic on this, which is that it's a great notion to remind us that we cannot reach for simple explanations for stuff. The difficulty is, and this is my current personal challenge, is in a world where you only have about 280 characters, the talk is only 40 minutes long, PDFs are hard to read, not everybody uh, will make the effort that you've just demonstrated, you've made, and, uh, and, and Jess in, 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 in her writings and talks have, have, have made. Just want to increase that effort. Yeah, there's, there's this idea that if you want to make things easier to control, you just focus on better controls. And what you really need to focus on is making the system simpler so that the controls can be simpler. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true. Mostly that uh, without, you know, I want to try to be not so sort of abstract is, like I said earlier, success prevents simplicity from happening, mm -hmm. right? Systems, as they become more successful, don't become simpler. To reduce complexity is to reduce the ability to reap the benefits of new opportunities. And people are very uh, reluctant to do that. So what um, you're challenging is the assumption that we want things to be simpler. Yes, because like, again, sort of a, and this is oversimplified, but if we want to be successful, we need, in your words, requisite, we need to match the greater systems, complexity, variety with our controls. If we have uh, any hope of sort of guiding at the very least or influencing. And so ironically, and a lot of a lot of folks think of complexity as um, a negative. If you have a lot of complexity, well, actually, complexity is what makes you successful, right? Uh, and in fact, here here's an idea. Remember, at its most basic level, a second redundant server is now more complex than the first, right? Mm -hmm. And going from one server to three in front of a load balancer has massively changed complexity. So feel free to go simpler if you would like, but you, that means you won't be able to, uh, to be able to handle or, or, or manage these sort of unforeseen or, or, or even uh, anticipated situations. That's all. So there's, there's complexity that is required that is forced upon us by, by the systems we're trying to manage. And then there's accidental complexity. Complexity that's there for other reasons. Is that a dichotomy that works? Is that should should there is there another way we should be thinking about that? I don't. I, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe this notion 
of inherent versus accidental complexity, I think it's an oversimplification because what's accidental is almost always labeled accidental in hindsight. And so that means that these things are negotiable, right? Instead, what I would say is, you know, uh, last two, a fundamental uh, influence on my understanding of complexity, which is difficult to really get. I, I tweeted the other, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there's a man named Scott Page, and uh, he wrote a book called Complex Adaptive Systems. And he has a, there's a, th- this, uh, this site called The Great Courses. I don't know if you've ever seen it, right? It's actually, uh, 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 it's been around for a long time. And it was, you know, it's weird. They'll have like hundreds of dollars for like this course, video course. And then out of nowhere, like one random Tuesday, you'll be like, and now it's 1999. And, um, and that happened <laughs> uh, or whatever, 30 bucks or whatever. And he's got a, um, there's a course uh, that Paige does called Understanding Complexity. It's uh, it's he uses he uses uh, uh, sort of explanations uh, on the concept from different domains, including biology, but also economics. And um, it's really great. When I was at Etsy, we actually had uh, a viewing of it. There's about seven or so, maybe about seven or so episodes. And we did a weekly viewing of each of the episodes with like followed up dialogue uh, about it. So. Um, so, yeah, um, you know. I'm feeling nervous that I'm that you all have gotten me um, talking abstractly, and which means that um, that's that's my job. I pull us up, and other people pull us down towards okay. more concrete things. <laughs> Somebody pull us down. I normally um, am a up puller too, but in this case, I think I can take this back to a concrete conversation, though, too. But through kind of an abstract pathway. Okay. So, I was listening to you talk about these cycles and stuff you see with how success creates this reinforcing loop where you end up with additional complexity in the system. And then in addition to this blindness effect, which you keep repeating words like there's things that you can't unsee. It's difficult to unsee. And then you contrasted also these how events are visible to us. And these non-events are these invisible things. And so I started putting these pieces together and thinking about success is kind of a invisible non-event, right? Which seems like given the success cycle of non-event would also mean that all the effects of those non-events are also in this place of blindness as you know, the cycle spins, it seems like the kinds of things that would be part of that invisible world. And I'm just wondering, since you've shifted to this mode of studying the outliers, studying the outages, studying the meaning of resilience, at the same time, you've like recognized, it's like you're looking into this world where there's all this stuff where people are kind of blind to. And I'm, I'm wondering if if you were to look in the context specifically of software, so we can ground this back into concrete discussion, what types of things do you see happening that people don't see? Like what is, what is the blindness you see out there in the context of software? Oh, this is great. Thank you. I think you're, you've made connections um, pretty great. And so there's a a bunch of things to unpack. So, well, first let me say, instead of saying, 
blindness per se. I might, I'd just say that there, since blindness is more about the uh, sort of the observer, I, I would almost say that it's difficult to see without very particular specific and in fact, I would say skill and uh, and knowledge of methods and approaches to see this sort of um, work. So let me ex- actually let me let me explain is, that. Um, is that like like we can technically see microbes in water, but we need to get the effort to get a microscope and look through it? Um, no, no. I guess what I mean is when I say see, I'm also I also mean sort of identify, recognize, uh, uh, um, detect. Uh, understand not just visually. So, what's the typical example in this field? By the way, un- what underpins all of this are methods, understanding cognitive work. That's it. That's the most succinct way of what underscores the commonality between resilience engineering, cognitive systems engineering, human factors, all of these sorts of things. Understanding cognitive work uh, in various scenarios and there's all kinds of detail on it but in the end it's about understanding cognitive work so for example the 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 typical example if you were to take cognitive science or a cognitive engineering course is tacit knowledge right when i talk about this with people it's generally pretty familiar when i uh, what's commonly said is that experts don't necessarily uh, are not necessarily expert at describing what makes them an expert Right. The phrase that, oh, they make it look so easy. Right. Is uh, uh, is really apt because when you see an expert, you know, making decisions, doing things, um, some of them. And in fact, a lot of folks won't recognize that they made a decision. And I like to think if you could go back in time and you're sitting with Jimi Hendrix, say, and, you know, you're you're watching him, watching him play or whatever, and you're recording him. Right. And then you and and, and then you play back with him and you say, hey, Jimmy, listen, uh, hold on. Let's let me zoom. Let me scrub up. Here's it. OK, so here's this. Here's the part of the solo. Now, can you tell me what made you choose that note? Right. He's not. He's, and. <laughs> It's very that's that gives you an understanding. Like if you've ever played a musical instrument, especially in an improvised way, what a very difficult question it is. Uh, there was a, a researcher in uh, the late '60s that gave a, an even better example, which is that you cannot describe accurately and comprehensively to someone how to ride a bike because it involves somatic knowledge. So I can't actually give you a procedure. You know the procedure, and then you can ride a bike. You, it's actually not. It's very. It's it's actually can. It makes a solid argument. That there is some tacit knowledge that literally cannot be made explicit, and so that's when I say something invisible. On the one hand, I also mean like that. A more concrete, really back to the last question you had, is all outages and incidents can be worse. Everyone can be worse. If we were to ask instead of how did this incident happen which by the way is a way better question than why did this incident happen? Um, if you instead asked, what are all the things that went into making this uh, not nearly as bad as it could have been? What are the things that made us pretty good at this? What, what kept this? And I say what, I mean, not just the software. I mean, the, uh, the attention. Where did the attention go? Tell me all about all of the red herrings that could have led us in a direction, but actually didn't. 
we did a great job at recognizing or dismissing without evidence that this route wasn't great, right? Versus that one. So, so in, in, in studying, the only reason that's the, that's the other mind blower is that the reason why we study incidents, and by the way, this is not a, uh, a software specific thing. All of the cognitive systems engineering is a great deal of it is studying incidents. And the reason why you study incidents is because you can make strong inferences about where people's attention and focus is. Incidents wipe away things that don't matter and only highlight the things that matter. And so therefore you have a much better chance. It's not just in the sort of the typical, like got to learn from failure. Like we're looking at the incidents. The way Holnagel would say it is that we're looking at incidents, not just to figure out what went wrong in sort of this sort of safety one uh, perspective, but actually just to see like, how do people make decisions uh, or sort of um, hijacking because incidents bring attention, right? Non-outages, it's very difficult. First of all, when did this non-outage start? And who was involved in this non-outage? It's very difficult to answer those questions. But instead, if you say, I'm going to use this doorway. Hey, look, there's an incident here. It's got a lot of attention. That's just an in. It's just a Trojan horse. We're going to get in so we can ask questions and try to understand about how people normally think about things and understand things and work through problems. Does that make sense? Yeah. How much of this do you think is attributable to a human bias where studies have shown that we give more negative feedback than positive feedback? We pay more attention to negative events than positive events. How much of this do you think is attributable to that sort of human bias where we are just not designed to pay attention to good things that happen and we pay attention to bad things that happen and things that hurt us? Full disclosure biases are a trigger word for me. So I'm going to try to um, keep myself reined in. The thing about this is that it's not that we're designed that way. That's what makes biases and heuristics a trigger word for me. And, and all of Kahneman's work, I, I would say, and Tversky's work, which is it, all of what we talk about is generally all comes back to that work. It draws attention to how we're flawed. And it's actually not that. I would say this, we can't not have those biases. If we didn't, we'd never get any work done. We, we would never. And in fact, uh, that's the thing is, is that they almost always, the, the vast majority, these biases are features, not bugs, right? And there's all kinds of sort of research on this and, 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 and one route is habituation, right? An example is in a world where we don't pay attention to successes, right? How many emails have you all sent today? Probably a good deal, right? I'll ask a, a group of people, um, software engineers, how comfortable they feel with email as a technology, right? As like a, a as a piece of software. And they always say, do you have, do you, do you send a lot of emails? Do you have experience with emails? Yes, I have good experience with emails. And then I ask them, how many, has anybody ever sent an email to somebody that they didn't intend? or a reply all to a group that they didn't intend. Everybody raises their hand. It's a familiar thing. We remember those times. We don't remember the times that we didn't do that because if we remembered that, good Lord, I can't remember what I have on my calendar this afternoon. Forget about all of the emails that I successfully, right? So those biases are there and heuristics are there. For very good reasons. 
So if I ate a cookie um, so, every time I successfully sent an email, I would eat a lot of cookies. <laughs> I am also an, adapt- an adaptationist. I think that these things exist in the brain because they serve or served some adaptive purpose. Uh, and the question for me is, are they adaptive in this context? Uh, they can't not be. Absolutely. Um, you know, back to the original. You're a strong adaptationist, and I might be a weak adaptationist. <laughs> well, no. What I would say is that I would say that, well, to sort of bring it back to the, 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 the question before, identifying, we touched on this earlier, identifying what heuristics and biases are in play at any given time are subject to something. They're subject to heuristics and biases, right? And so um, you, you never see a postmortem, thank God, or at least if it does, I'm glad that I'm not there, uh, where a facilitator says, okay, Stephanie, so can you just point on the timeline, where did your recency bias begin and when did it end? Where on the timeline do you remember being affected by confirmation bias? Right. It's that's actually not a thing. And the reason why that's not a thing is that this work, this important seminal work by Kahneman and Tversky was not out for identifying. And they're quite clear on this. This is not a this is not a thing. One, they can they were to uh, they were out to identify the existence of these types and and, and possibly get a, a shape of these types of, of heuristics and biases. Gary Klein's work placed decision-making in context. And he said, well, I'm not going to use that. I understand that that's his foundational stuff. Well, I'm going to go study people and how they actually do their work in real life scenarios, not contrived, controlled Spartan laboratory environments uh, where we ask graduate students very particular puzzle type questions. Instead, I'm going to find somebody who is trying to figure out what to do in um, the middle of fighting a fire. And, uh, and so that foundational sort of what was now known as naturalistic decision-making underscores a lot of this work that is going in. And in fact, it's a foregone conclusion. I, there is, there's very little, I'm not, I'm unaware of any resilience engineering uh, uh, work study research that heavily relies on, you know, the classical thinking fast and slow stuff and almost always is it's context sensitive and it insists mostly on foundations of naturalistic decision making. I think you just said that resilience engineering and human factors and, and this work is based on naturalistic decision making in context, not on discrete biases that are observed in lab experiments. Yes. Thanks. One of the things I noticed you keep stopping on is like when you state questions, um, you kind of add a little bit of meta commentary on the structure of the question. And I'm guessing you're probably thinking about how the nature of the question affects what happens in people's brains when they're answering it. And I'm wondering if you put yourself back into, okay, there's this outage that just happened and I'm sitting with my team and I'm going to ask them a set of questions to help get their, you know, minds in the right space, what kind of questions would you ask? Like, what's your checklist? And then can you give a little bit of meta commentary on why that checklist? Yes. First of all, I think you're great. Um, I appreciate this. And I love this question. Here's the easy answer. The easy answer is on, on this particular question. 
we wrote when I was at Etsy, we wrote a, a document called a debriefing facilitation guide. And that's the much longer answer to your question. But I can I, I'll give you the, the the sort of the shorter answer. First, I'll say this uh, say this with 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 emphasis. Absolutely no checklist under no circumstances, because a checklist is uh, maybe certain guidance, maybe sort of a uh, method, approach, technique, but not a checklist. Because a checklist assumes that all incidents have equal opportunity to shed light on all phenomena. And we know that that's absolutely not the case. And in fact, I, I would I'd make a strong case that incidents, even incidents that are deemed to be quote unquote repeats or similar are much more like fingerprints and unique than, than, than is, is understood largely because of that stuff. That's, um, that's difficult to see. So the shorter and more complete answer is that the most fruitful method and approach is in, in my opinion, comes from a family of approaches of methods called cognitive task analysis, and one in particular called the critical decision method. The debriefing facilitation guide, the third section of it is written by Morgan Evans, who worked uh, with me at Etsy, talks about really strategies for generating questions that are context-specific. The critical decision method uh, uh, also comes from Gary Klein's work and is pretty core um, because what it does is it frames the questions. You're absolutely right. How you ask a question, where you choose to focus, whether it's how it's closed, how it's open are really, really critically important. And that's, if there's anything that I would say is, is the most fruitful is to pay so much more attention here. You know, what's a great thing that is, here's a, a pro tip because I think the bar is really low in our industry on getting good at this. Uh, which is good because it gives me hope that I might be employed for a while, um, is that imagine a world where post-mortem, in post-mortem meetings, not only are recorded the answers in your template, I'd say template pejoratively because I'm not a huge fan of those either, but the questions that are asked in those. Imagine if you recorded the questions that were asked in the worst cases, you might just find that list to be five items long and they're all why. Um, but uh, in the best cases, you'll find better questions. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, uh, I, I'm interested. I'm quite pleased that you made that observation about how, how a comment, or at least uh, I certainly, I, I can't not pay attention to how a question is asked. Can you specifically comment on asking why questions versus asking what questions you made a very specific correction on that point earlier. Oh yeah. Asking why will give you a rationale. It'll give you an explanation. You do not want an explanation. Explanations throw out data. What you want are descriptions. Tell me how you did this. Is this something you normally do? What are the things that you paid attention to? What are the things that you took note of, whether you did anything about them or not? In retrospective understanding of incidents, and I'm going to say of, of, of events uh, generally, you want descriptions. You want descriptions. If you, if you ask somebody why, 
they're going to tell you something that makes sense, right? Was was the great quote Tom Clancy, the author, said the difference between fiction and reality is that fiction has to make sense. There's also a great researcher in this space called Todd Conklin. He has a great podcast called the Pre-Accident Podcast, and he did a uh, tutorial at, at Velocity some years ago, and he really nails this, which is that you want descriptions. You do not want explanations. Why gets you an explanation, gets you a rationale. I would maybe add that there are two sorts of why questions, and they're not always differentiated. There are what for questions, and there are how come questions. So when you ask why, you sometimes mean how come this happened, and you sometimes mean what was the motivation for this to happen, and neither of those are the sort of questions you want to answer. You know, in an interview situation or like a, a group interview, some, a lot of these post-mortem or post-incident reviews are either one-on-one or group, uh, semi-structured interviews, really. And it's difficult to, to avoid asking why. And certainly if you have the trust and understanding and there's a lot more context you can in, in dialoguing at, in, in, in getting at that, sometimes I'll instead say, uh, I'll, you might ask instead, Oh, so then, then what happened? Or then what did you do? And then they say, oh, well, I, you know, I ran this command. You could say things like, is this what you normally do? Do you normally do that? Um, you, you, you might ask, what brought you to do that? And so in the end, but in, in the end, it's about a triangulation of how and when and that sort of thing. I completely, by the way, I completely agree with what you're saying. Exactly. Yes, I'm, I'm yes ending your, your thing. But I, I would say that that's why I was, what I was saying is that what we're talking about here is knowledge elicitation. That's the technical term for this. And knowledge elicitation methods are a huge topic. There's many routes for it. And there's many sort of families of approaches and techniques. And that's at a high level, that's what I'm hoping to really shed light on in, in software is that these exist and you can get good at them. And it takes practice. Uh, so when you said don't ask why questions because you're trying to elicit information, how my brain processed that is when you ask a how come this happened question, you're asking someone to make the intuitive leap that you're trying to avoid by going through this process in the first place. Exactly. So let me, let me give you something super concrete. I don't know if, uh, if, if all the panelists have ever been, you can nod if the panelists have been in a postmortem meeting. Right. And there's situation there. If there are groups where uh, there are those particular meetings where somebody will ask a question, somebody will say, oh, well, because of blah, blah, blah. And at some point in the dialogue, every now and then you might hear a, oh, ah, ah, and you'll hear things like, <laughs> I didn't know it worked that way. Or, oh, that that's a surprise. I thought it would. I thought it was blah or I didn't know that. Or you'll, you know, in those situations, here's another sort of uh, incident analyst uh, analyst trick. When somebody says in their description or in their answers, they say, well, and then obviously I got to, you know, obviously I have to blah, 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 blah. And then you, what you do is what you can do is, is, is sort of put a pause on the conversation, ask everybody else in the room if what they're about to say is obvious. I can tell you right now. You never get uniform, you know. And so getting people to say things out loud, you'll never get somebody to say something or describe something that they don't think is necessary. Because, holy crap, we only have this room for an hour. 
and we better put something down because the CTO is going to kill us if we don't have action items, whatever, all those sorts of things. The trick is you want to get people to say things out loud that others don't know. Twice in my career at Etsy, over seven years, twice, no joke, these two guys who sat next to each other in two different postmortems, this almost the exact same thing, a uh, dynamic happened well, once with one of them and then the, once with the other. They'd say, all right, all right, well, walk us through how do you do, you know, you do, you're doing this sort of backfill on the databases of blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, yeah, so I do this and then I do this and then I, you know, so I clean the, you know, I make sure that the data is uh, clean because of whatever special character or what some, some sort of thing. And then I do this other process. And well, how, wait, wait, how do you do that bit? Well, you said you clean the data. How do you, how do you do that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this. Uh, I got this shell alias. And then the guy who has been sitting next to that person for for like literally years turns to him and says, "You what?" He says, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you, I use? Uh, you know, dot dot. You know, clean dot sh or something. You know, he's like, I I have that in my. He's like, you have that? Are you going to share that?" With me sitting right next to you. How do you know? How do you have that? It's like, I, I thought I got it from you. You didn't get it from me. I didn't even know it was existed. <laughs> I didn't know it was a thing, right? And so those are the things, right? Those are the interactions. Those are the things you never forget. Those you will learn things. And guess what? That's not the type of stuff that's going to get captured in a follow-up action item, remediation item, and yet can have a significant influence on how people do their work in the future. And so that's the type of things that, you know, and so I think you're absolutely right. And, and so, you know, asking why, you know, get, gets you that it does not, it, it gets you the opposite of what you want, right? You want people to get, uh, uh to, to make their sort of thought processes. If you ask why you get, how do you make sense of this? When your goal is to elicit data to make sense of something at a much higher level. Yeah, and something that I don't yeah, – yeah, absolutely. And by the way, what we're talking about here is nothing but just verbal reports, which of course – and I don't think the industry is really ready for this. But what you really have to do is um, you can't also – you can ask, you should ask all these questions and have people in a room. But you should uh, – um, and part of these, part of critical decision method, part of process tracing, and some of these other um, uh, methods are presenting what people did and asking them questions about that rather than relying on their memory because memory doesn't work like because memory distortion is a thing uh, and verbal reports have widely varying reliability. So instead, what you can do, and David Woods is really a, sort of the, the, the sort of the pioneer of cognitive process tracing. What you're doing is effectively looking at what people said at the time, what people did at the time, what people did after, what people said after, right? And then use that as uh, the directionally and focusing. Because then what you can do is the, the longer explanation of how to do this, which is why I'm so uh, enthusiastic about it, is in my master's thesis. Is I had to learn how to do this. You do something called cued recall. And so that way you, what you're doing is you're asking very specific questions in a very particular way about what people did so that you can uh, get a much broader and much richer description 
And then what you can do, the other trick, is you can ask other folks, especially in teamwork and team activities, uh, people who have worked with each other. You can ask, you know, I noticed that Jess did this. You know, I could say to John and say, uh, so, so John, I, so in, at this point, Jess, you know, shared this dashboard and she ran this command. What are some of the reasons that you can think of that she might do that? And so then that way we, we have as a corroboration. So anyway, you've gotten me talking about critical decision method and process tracings. Well, that also sounds like a great way of eliciting further misunderstanding about the system. If I project on Jess that she probably did this because X, Y, Z, because my understanding of the system is flawed, then that's another thing we can uncover in that. Yes. And uh, in addition to that, have a shot at finding potential misunderstandings that were repaired. Right. And and that, that's a thing that happens so uh, uh, almost flu- so fluidly that it's quite difficult to even acknowledge without doing pretty particular conversation analysis. But it's it's a lot of work. Uh, this is all qualitative analysis. It's it has rigor, just like quantitative analysis does, except that it's it's a lot of work. And we're just not used to looking at incidents and doing investigation this way. My goal in life right now is to change that. Yeah, getting back to the um, why questions versus what questions and how questions, um, it, it strikes me that part of the, the phrasing of the questions is to resist the, the human tendency to construct a narrative around something in the past and say, oh, this happened because – and then you sort of use the narrative as a placeholder for what actually happened. And like you said, it loses information because all the things that don't fit the narrative just get thrown out. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, yeah, and and I'll be a semantic jerk here and say that um, loses data. Um, I wouldn't say sort of information. But yeah, I think you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And in, there's Erickson and Simon book called Protocol Analysis. It's this thick, pretty seminal, very dry. I wouldn't really uh, suggest it. You can get the TLDR for my master's thesis. I can't believe I just said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get the you have to read my master's thesis in order to get the light overview of this. But yeah, and that's 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 what's um quite fascinating. Actually, you know what? It just occurred to me that the 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 answer to your question, Lisanne Bainbridge wrote a paper on on verbal reports. It's it's like two pages long, and that's really the that's really the um sort of the the original, like probably the most accessible. Um, way of describing exactly what you just said, but in like supported by, you know, empirical research. But I, I do want to point out that just what we've been talking about here are really sort of in the nerdy details of, you know, knowledge elicitation and discovering cognitive work. In the end, just to tie this back to the, the topic of, of resilience engineering, this is it. This is it. Because there resilience is, no, is in the humans. Resilience is, yes, yes, exactly. And uh, because only people have flexibility for and potential for uh, adapting to unforeseen situations. Because we talked at the beginning about that law of requisite variety. In order to control a system, you need to be at least as complex as it is. And that's not going to help us if we keep trying to build computer systems to control computer systems. But as soon as you put a human in there, yeah, I'm at least as complex as, as this. And then you put a team of humans and you add even more. 
Yeah, and and the 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 yeah, absolutely. And so then the the really the uh, the, the takeaway, or really the 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 focus, I, I I would assert that the focus then should be how we design software that takes into account that it will be and needs to be understandable by people. And I don't just mean from a, just a, you know, what I'm not saying is a bunch of fancy words that really just means better UX. So that if if you were to take the, the cognitive systems engineering view, which is the idea that people and machines um, and people in technology can be seen as a joint cognitive system, right? And uh, the shorthand of saying this is how can you make automation a team player, right? As if they were a member of your team, not an like empty, shallow AI thing. Uh, exactly. Just that paper right there should be in the show notes. Yeah, Ten challenges yeah, to making automation a, um, a team player. Of course you have that paper and of course you have it printed out right on your desk. Well, um, yeah, because you recommended it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really the gist. And if I could plug something, um, uh, Richard and I, Richard Cook and I wrote a chapter um, for this book coming out called Seeking SRE. And towards the end, there's like a section of like, okay, this is great. What can we do about it? Like, where should we put our attention? Like, this is all fine. And but what do we do next? And part of that is actually, you know, part of this was was is, is sort of outlined there. That's the thing we could, we should be focusing on. One of the things that we sort of glossed over earlier is the idea of, you know, what information does an observer need to make a decision? And what I'm gathering from this is that there's this concept of an objective observer that's separate from the system and can just look at the system isn't a thing that exists. In reality, systems include people, right? People are part of the system. The system acts on the people. The people act on the system. Yes. Yes, you're right. You're right. But also remember, and, and but in, and I would say that you could uh, another way of even being a bit more uh, grounded on that is that studies of expertise ish reveal it's not just about observers; it's about the context that they place their observations in, and that comes from experience in diverse and wide-ranging scenarios. And so we can't just think of a person because we can't just think of sort of the clip art version of, you know, a human in front of a computer because uh, then there's a view that the only context that's important is, is their like calculator, like, you know, brain and then the, the big calculator with the keyboard. But we know that that's not true. We are Hypothesis- not functional programs. Well, but yes, absolutely. And we also know that things like hypothesis generation, for example, huge part in our industry, especially to tackle uh, uh, uncertainty and ambiguity is to generate hypotheses. Where do those hypotheses come from? Well, they're influenced by all kinds of things, including the knowledge that you knew yesterday that you made changes to your CDN configuration. Also, it's influenced by what other people are talking about and you are hearing, right? Some of it comes from the fact that you now, you know that your website is being featured on, you know, CNN. And that's not captured by the clip art or the abstract. You, you see what I'm saying? So I'm yes-anding what you, what you were saying. 
one of one of the things sort of that human factors pioneered is that humans aren't perfect spherical cows in a vacuum, right? We can't just abstract away the human component and say that, oh, just pretend that humans are rational agents. And cows. You actually, right. So if, if the <laughs> metaphor is unfamiliar, the, the joke is that uh, a dairy farm wanted to increase production, so they hired a physicist, and he went away for a month and came back and said, I have a solution, but it only works for the case of spherical cows in a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I, and I would say that it's shockingly, it's only shockingly recent that the idea that, you know, a rational choice theory has been debunked. I mean, it was only the 60s uh, that bounded rationality became, a, you know, a, a concept. And so, but the answer is yes. That's what this work is all about, is exploring that context that uh, that exists in very, very grounded ways. This is the difference between cognitive psychology, which can be done in a lab and can be done abstractly, and I don't have to leave my you know university uh, office. And because all of human factors work includes field work. It includes putting on your boots. It includes uh, seeing what people are doing in real, actual, concrete ways, not abstract. Um, and the, if you were to ask Dave Woods, what I really like is he said, what we do is we analyze and then aggregate versus other fields that aggregate first and then analyze. So when we're looking at incidents, this is why I, I, I will be sort of down on the value of, of uh, sort of central tendency figures like mean time to resolve, right? Doesn't really tell us much. In fact, it's not nearly as important as other facets of an incident, for example. It's data, sure, I would say in this case to be more correct, TTR, but there's so much more rich richness in there. And so, yeah, these human factors worlds are inherently context sensitive. They, they have to. You cannot be a human factors or cognitive systems engineering or resilient engineering. You can't do this work and stay in your office. You have to be in the field. Analyze and then aggregate. Is that form a hypothesis, then test? No. It's, we're saying is we, instead of, you know, force me to uh, uh, be a little bit oversimplified here, but so instead of saying, oh, well, we have 30 incidents and here's the average length, right? This is one, this is one aggregation, right? We're going to look closely at incident number one, right? We're going to look at, how many people are involved? Were some brought in later? How do people bring each other up to speed? What can this case teach us? What does this case have the opportunity to tell us? Or what can it not tell us? Right? And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at these in detail. This takes effort. This takes time. Um, certainly takes a lot more time than calculating an average in Excel. Here's a question. How did people arrive that the incident was over? Because that's negotiable. That's quite negotiable, actually, when an incident is actually over. And if that's negotiable, then certainly taking the average of those lengths of time might also be negotiable, but even in a more muddled way. And so that's what Woods means when he says that analyze in detail closely at cognitive work. And then we can use that to aggregate. If what you want to understand is 
let's say that you had a, a question that's on the mind of lots of engineering leaders are, is my team coherent? Or sorry, uh, 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 is, is my team uh, not coherent, but is it is it um, cohesive, right? Or, or is my team tight, right? Can they finish each other's sentences? Do they work really well under pressure? Do they share uh, in, in those really great ways that, a, you know, in a, in a baseball team that can, if baseball teams that can do double plays, which are really hard to pull off, forget about triple plays, right? As an example, uh, improvisational bands that are really good, uh, at working together. Well, one of those you might ask, all right, do they generate a wide and, uh, um, a wide set of, uh, hypotheses? Uh, are they good at abandoning unproductive threads of, you know, of diagnosis or that sort of thing? If you wanted to ask that question, then you could look at this set of 30 incidents and have a better sense, but only of having an answer at that, but only if you've done that work on those bases. Maybe, in fact, when you look at the corpus of these cases and say, well, you know what, only about eight of those people were faced with real tough challenges with respect to diagnosis. The vast, but the others, you know, if we wanted to ask questions about detection or identification or, you know, improvised uh, response and repair, you know, uh, that sort of thing, um, those other cases could tell us. But I gave this talk at, at, at redeploy. Some cases uh, you detect and notice quite quickly that things are going poorly. Sometimes coincident with that, you know exactly what's happening. But then in order to repair it may take a very long time or actually might be unclear how to repair it. Other cases, you didn't know that things were happening and they slowly moved up or whatever. It was unclear. And then as soon as you acknowledged or recognized what was happening, you knew exactly what to do. And working it out was not actually. So there's just those two cases are so different that comparing their Length of time doesn't really make sense. It's certain. I mean, you can do it. Certainly, we can average all of the heights of the people on this podcast. I'm sure as well. I don't know if it would tell us much about the conversation we're having. Does it make sense? So this is similar to the problem that we often have in figuring out where we spend our time fixing bugs. Is it detecting that there's a bug? Is it figuring out what the causes of the bug are? Is it fixing the causes? Is it figuring out who is going to do the work of fixing the causes. We often just say, well, we opened the bug on day X, we closed it on day Y, and that's how long the bug took. Yeah, that objective, that sort of objective data. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. All of that sort of subjective and, 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 and sort of directional perspective is really important. I think it's a, that's a great, a great comparison and a great analogy. So this actually brings me to my reflection for the entire conversation, which is how do we deal with the objective-subjective dialectic, we want to be objective. We want to make measurements. But what we care about informs our measurements. And what measurements we have informs what we care about. But we also, in our you know, quest to be objective, ignore or exclude some factors because we don't know how to make them objective. We just mark them as subjective and say, well, we don't care about those. But then the objective decisions we make are irrelevant because they don't take into account all of the necessary factors. Right. What do we do about that? <laughs> Is that... Um... Well, the good, the good news is that there's plenty to do. It's just that we are not <laughs> in, so, in software, we are not used to tackling this question. 
but um, there's 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 a number of different fields and a number of different methods and and, and routes to do this. And it's I have come to believe actually um, at this point in my career that it's actually un, it's this is this dynamic or this phenomenon that you're talking about is um, should probably be unsurprising, right? In software, we are all paid to make sure that when we add two plus two, it's always four. So deter- the idea that, so the, 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 the notion that determinism is seen as uh, almost like a law of the universe, it's not surprising. In fact, it would be surprising if we, if we did pay attention to that. That doesn't mean we can't make progress. I think that, I think we'll make progress by talking about it more. Um, I don't know if you could go to a Lisa conference in 1999 and expect to see any talks on the topic of empathy. Yeah. And yet here we are. It's interesting to think about what different fields are already primed for. Like, for instance, I think if I ask this question of a bunch of anthropologists, they just sort of look at me like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah. And my MO, quite simply, is to make sure that all those anthropologists, anthropologists, hang out with us more often. <laughs> oh, too bad Astrid's not here today. Yeah. She's an anthropology person. Okay, so we're in reflections. Janelle, do you have a reflection? So I was thinking back, John, to your, your superpower at the beginning about being able to synthesize all these different connections. And I've been kicking back listening to this and finding so many parallels with my own research that in a lot of ways is in a similar space, but in other ways it's totally different. So while you've been studying the details of incidents in terms of outages, I started measuring the friction in developer experience and measuring incidents as the duration of cognitive dissonance. So when you hit an unexpected observation and you're in that WTF moment, what happened? And then the time it takes you to resolve troubleshooting to resolve your understanding. And so all of my research and work has been studying those incidences. And we use duration of time as a threshold for determining whether something is conversation worthy. So when you have those things that are resolved pretty quick, probably not worth talking about. But sometimes troubleshooting takes an hour. Sometimes it takes five hours. Sometimes it takes days, weeks to figure stuff out. And I think a lot of these questions you're asking, how do, how do we abandon unproductive threads of diagnosis? I mean, like just these, these same kinds of questions of how do we generate a wide set of hypotheses? Like if you take that back to its fundamental essence of communication, of being able to broaden our understanding so we can see what's going on to improve the quality of our decisions in those moments. I mean, there's just so much richness to learn in that space. And so my mind has been exploding listening to you talk over so many different levels of abstraction and just stitching together all these cool pieces. I think the big thing that I'm walking away with is one of the things you've mentioned earlier was during this period of time, during this incident, the things that we focus on, the things that we pay attention to is a clear signal of what matters. Whereas other times there's lots of mixing in in things. 
of like lots of different threads going on. Whereas during this one moment of this incident, you get a really clean signal with all kinds of learning opportunity. And when it comes to research and synthesis across all these different areas, I'm feeling like that's actually the key is finding people that are working on understanding the dynamics of these critical decisions that happen during these incidents in all of these different domains as the stitching. Anyway, I would love to talk later because I think there's so much overlap of things. And in the name of like synthesis and putting the puzzle pieces together, I feel like there's so many people that have different pieces of this puzzle that all need to like get together and hang out. I would very much enjoy that. (laughs) Thank you. This has been so wonderful. Uh, my, as I said, my brain is exploding. I'm going to be thinking about this conversation all day. Excellent. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. I have a quick reflection. My reflection is that I'm going to look up, well, I'm going to look up a lot of things, of course, but the specifically, I'm especially interested in the knowledge elicitation methods, because I think if I can get better at forming questions, then I'll be a better podcaster interviewer. And I'll be better at talking to people at conferences. And I think it will really help with pairing and mob programming and learning from people while I'm working with them, which particularly fascinates me. John, your turn. Do you have any reflections? Okay. Can I have one more real quick? Oh, okay. It'll be real quick. You know, I've been spending some time trying to learn about this stuff on my own. And every time I'm exposed to people like John or I read a new book, I realize that there's a huge amount of knowledge out there, and I don't understand how any one person is ever going to be competent in all of the places where competence is required to be able to do this work. Right. It takes a network of yes. people and a network fact, of it, groups. One way of restating that is that it will take variety to match variety. There you go. That's a nice way to wrap it up. What was your reflection, John? My reflection is how this conversation has evolved and the types of comments and questions that you all have contributed is really, especially on a sort of categorical or, you know, where you chose to guide the dialogue is the data for me that I'm taking away because a big part of, uh, I, I think the, the, uh, uh, what I'm passionate about is, is, is putting, this stuff into an accessible and uh, uh, grokkable way. Uh, the Redeploy conference confirmed for me that software is not ready for particular topics in the mainstream. And so there's a, there's a number of different sort of what I would might call one-on-one sort of level material uh, that is, is necessary. And so um, there's, I will say, I will, I will let something out of the bag, which is that I, I'm so convinced of this. I think that there's not everybody is going to be able to do a two-year master's in human factors and system safety. And so there's, there's something that I, and I'm working on with, with Woods and Cook, you know, perhaps some other sort of venue or, or uh, a route to talk about these things and, and place them. It's exciting work. It's exciting topics. The challenge is that can all get muddled together and be really overwhelming for some people. Um, and I think that and, and being structured about that. And so our conversation here is really sort of maybe influenced 
what's important to people and um, uh, or at least giving me ways to ask questions of maybe of you all after the podcast about what's important to you, that sort of thing. Speaking of talking more about this, if you would like to join the conversation on the Greater Than Code Slack channel, which is my favorite Slack channel, all you have to do is donate a dollar or more on our Patreon.com site, and you can be part of this listener-supported podcast. I'll join that. Sweet. Perfect. Nice. This has been an episode of Greater Than Six of 90 Code. <laughs> I think that's um, Greater Than Code, episode 96. But thank you close. all for listening. <laughs>